0: Most of these concerns began when AT&T uh, CEO Ed Whitaker informed everybody that Google wasn't going to be allowed to, quote unquote, ride
1: his pipes for free. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. And it's been a little while. <laughs> I'm excited to be here with Carl Bodie. Carl, welcome. Thank you for
0: having me. I appreciate
1: it uh It's been a while since you were here, and now uh you're someone who I feel like we have a little bit of a conflict in that um you're someone who there's uh, a lot of writing for us
0: yeah it's true there's plenty to write about there's endless news
1: we are we've been excited that you've joined as a freelancer um uh, have been working uh together It's probably been a year almost a year now right since you wrote your first story
0: yep a little more than a year yeah it's been great.
1: But I haven't had you on the show and uh, we're fixing that now. Um, you and I were exchanging a couple of emails about the, uh, net neutrality, uh, return to prominence. Um, curious. I am deeply curious to see if this takes over all of the, uh, the, the telecom news sectors or if, uh, you know, bead and, and net neutrality be at war with each other with, uh, for clickbait articles or what?
0: Yeah, we'll see. I, I I sense a certain fatigue <laughs> in both the press and the public, and in policymakers with not just net neutrality but uh, telecom issues in general. The last two years was was filled with just talk about antitrust reform for tech. You know, big tech. Everything was about big tech content moderation. That's that's pretty much got the exclusive focus. And so it's interesting to see uh, net neutrality roar back, and and to see if people actually are still as uh, interested as they were when they repealed it in twenty seventeen
1: yeah and so we're gonna we're gonna talk about that uh we might talk on a about a couple of other topics but uh well we we i'm sure we will touch on a few other things that are related but we wanted to to talk about that I wanted to just uh make sure people know who you are uh so uh Carl, you got into this uh fairly recently. <laughs> <laughs> like I 1999 1998
0: uh, yeah 98 yeah I, I i helped uh i helped build dsl reports with justin beach uh, which is a website Why would I
1: report on dsl it's, it's I, uh, I know
0: good i know isdn a lot of, i wrote a lot of articles about uh, bonded isdn at the time i remember um we basically noticed there wasn't a real repository for people to share their feelings about broadband reviews so we made basically a giant community that mostly griped about high latency and high costs and you know Day in day out, I would write about what companies were doing, and you you learned a lot about how government works during that whole process
1: yeah, and you really built a community you had every article had tens of comments, I feel like quickly
0: yeah, that community is it's still going on it's pretty much that website's kind of been put in autopilot, but it's still got a pretty strong community over there, of people that just want to figure out how things works and figure out how to fix their problems uh, about seven eight years ago i started freelancing more and you can you can find my work all over the place at tech Dirt and now at the institute and vice and other places so it's been a long haul tracking this industry
1: and i feel like you've always been a voice which is one of of um am i like am i crazy here like you know like like i read all these stories about this but like no one's talking about Monopoly. Uh, You know, that's one of the things that uh, the recurring theme for you more lately is to be like, how can uh, we have hundreds of stories about a given tech thing or about the Beat awards and no one mentions Monopoly. So this is uh, before we get into net net neutrality, I want to talk about this hobby horse of yours. Um, So (laughs) nobody acknowledges that Monopoly and broadband is a problem.
0: No, you could read, you could go pick any week. Any day of the week, go look at the top 10 stories about broadband and try to find one that clearly points out that we have a problem with consolidated monopoly power in the telecom space that causes competitive shortcomings. And you won't find it. It's just kind of floated over. The idea that we have monopolies that are kind of coddled by government uh, corruption is just not talked about. It's as if it doesn't exist. You can read 30 stories about Comcast and nobody will mention that they don't have enough competition and that's why their prices are high. So we talk about telecom, we talk about broadband policy, but there's this weird, I think in, po- in the political landscape, they're so afraid of upsetting these companies because they're such big campaign contributors, but they're also pretty much bone grafted to our intelligence gathering and first responder network. So they're effectively a pretty closely tethered extension of government. So I think you have a lot of these political leaders that want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to talk you know, politely and and about the digital divide and how they want to fix that, but none of them really want to get to the real meat of the issue which is that we've allowed consolidated monopoly power to flourish leaving most communities with the choice of just one or two providers that don't try very hard to compete don't compete on price have abysmal customer service that statistically ranks like among the worst of any industry in the country which is a, a pretty impressive feat
1: yeah we have wells fargo out there
0: yeah it's glossed over it's it's i it just became surreal to me as i was writing about these policy issues that So much of the coverage wasn't exactly being honest, I think, about where we find ourselves.
1: Well, I was going to ask you uh, why that's a problem to not acknowledge it, although I think you just covered it at the end of your comments. Um, But I I, I did want to note that I think it is the money, but I think it's also that people should appreciate that every... Almost every district has a place where Comcast or Charter has service in the district right and the uh, and the big telephone companies have powerful uh, a large union and there's not a lot of private sector unions left, but the communication workers of America are one, and they certainly don't see eye to eye with those big companies on everything but there's a fair amount of issues that they do agree with them on uh, and so that gives even more power in the state house and at the federal level to um, those few big cable and telephone monopolies
0: yeah and let's let's be honest in a lot of these states the telecom monopolies are literally writing the law you know it's it's right. kind of it's filtered through proxy groups um, that do this for a living and present it to lawmakers, but a good majority of the time they're writing telecom law. And then we chitter around and act surprised why prices are so high, or these companies didn't really feel like they had to extend broadband an extra thousand feet to some of the other parts of the neglected communities. So it, writing about this year after year after year and noticing this kind of omission and context of coverage frustrated me. So I try to be honest about what I see.
1: We're doing a little bit of a scavenger hunt, trying to figure out if any of the state plans, any of the volumes, any of the five-year plans mention Monopoly as a problem. Uh, So far, we've not identified one, although, as we talked about on a previous show, South Carolina does, quote, residents of the state who do identify that as a problem. But no state is saying one of our problems is that uh, we have this uh, significant lack of market competition.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a lot of leverage there in messaging to the public, you know, because their frustration with these companies is, is
1: very severe,
0: you know, and I still don't see politicians capitalizing it and, and speaking to the public in a way that really resonates.
1: That's right. So let's move on to net neutrality. Um, net neutrality is back in the news. Uh, cha- uh, Federal Communications Chairperson, Chairwoman, Chair uh, Jessica Rosenworcel has uh, announced new rules. Um, I think some of us candidly were were cynically skeptical uh, before we saw the announcement that they would go as far as they have. Uh, as you and I are recording this, we have not seen the rules, but certainly um, uh, Jessica Rosenworcel described them in a way that sounds like they are very similar to the rules of uh 2015, I believe it was. And also note that uh I felt like Blair Levin wrote up, wrote up a piece about them. And I don't know that he saw them, although I suspect that he would know if there was a major difference and seemed to think that they would be broadly similar to uh the rules that already went through. So we'll for people who aren't familiar with this, we're gonna talk briefly about where we are right now, and then we'll talk about how we got here. So right now it seems like we're seeing, uh, you know, um, pretty strong rules being developed. Um, I think uh, by the time people hear this, the rules will be publicly available that will be voted on at the end of October. Uh, And then uh, I think the internet ends at that point, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, everything stops. You can't use the internet. Um, All things break.
1: There'll be no more investment in it. That's something that I've learned. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. All, all investment in broadband stops because we implemented some fairly basic consumer protections. I'm sorry to inform everyone.
1: Which no one was ever planning on violating anyway.
0: Right. Exactly.
1: exactly right. <laughs> exactly. Right.
0: Yeah. I was, I was impressed that they actually brought in the full title II reclassification. I, I think there was some concern that they would try to do kind of a pseudo net neutrality, um, that sounded good, covered all the bases, but didn't actually, uh, restore the FCC's full authority over, uh, uh, broadband giants. I thought it was interesting this time they took a little bit of a wrinkle in the language and they made it, they, they made it clear that restoring the FCC's full authority here would help it do things like implement cybersecurity standards. So they, they integrated a lot more language about how the FCC needs some of this authority, not just to uh, protect net neutrality and prevent uh, monopolies from abusing their market power, but also because it will help them Uh, shore up cybersecurity, which if you haven't noted, there's just an endless flood of hacks and breaches and wireless data collection scandals that the FCC hasn't been able to really do much about because they had that authority stripped
1: away. Right. And we'll talk about Title I versus Title II to explain that in a a few minutes. But I think it is important to note that I'm not a lawyer, um, very important to note that. But what I was going to say is that, um, you know, the FCC has been doing a lot to try to extend its authority to subsidize telecommunications service to broadband. Uh, under uh, the end of the Obama administration, the rules that were put into place by Chairman Wheeler at that time uh made it clear that the FCC had the authority to subsidize broadband services for low-income families and things like that. When the Trump administration and Chair Pai got rid of those rules, I feel like it was one of those things where like it wasn't totally clear that the FCC still had the authority to subsidize broadband at that point, And they they found a workaround, but it's not the best. Uh, and so um, this action will, you know, for instance, make it clear that the FCC is able to subsidize straight broadband networks, which is something that I think we want it to have the ability to do to fill in the gaps that are inevitable after BEAD is done.
0: Yeah, that's important. I think it's important to note that the net neutrality debate really kind of began almost two decades ago. I've been covering this story for two decades for a variety. I think digital
1: digital river was like two thousand three.
0: It's amazing. It's amazing. We're still, you know, we're still fighting. But and it's also important to note that this began under the Bush presidency. So this wasn't some partisan, you know, as it's framed today as some radical socialist takeover of the internet or whatever. This began as an idea in the Bush administration both terms, you know, dealt with this issue because they realized you needed these monopolies needed some kind of guidelines so that they're not constantly abusing their control over the access points to the internet to uh, disadvantage uh, competitors or harm consumers. This was originally a bipartisan concept.
1: Right. And so, you know, the funny thing is that I feel like we didn't even define what net neutrality is, so we can do that right now as we talk about a little bit of the history, but the idea is that the the companies that own the internet access delivery networks the 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 um the fiber optics the wireless depending the the cable the copper uh they have a lot of power to shape what people do whether that is by outright blocking sites, which seems like it would be pretty rare, although has happened on occasion, uh, or prioritizing some sites, which means deprioritizing other sites to send nudges where, um, you know, like just to give a dumb example, that wouldn't happen. But, um, you know, if, uh, if it was easier to go to the Washington Post and that page loaded quickly all the time versus, uh, Fox News or New York Times, people are going to be going to the website that they know will load quickly to get those breaking news and things like that so the those companies that own the pipes have a lot of power to shape the experience and therefore nudge the or bludgeon <laughs> both the uh the users of the networks in certain directions
0: yeah and 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 To go back in history to 2005, most of these concerns began when AT&T CEO Ed Whitaker informed everybody that Google wasn't going to be allowed to, quote unquote, ride his pipes for free. Mm-hmm. You know, that was his argument. He, he wanted to double dip. He basically was informing everyone that he wanted to charge content companies extra money in addition to the bandwidth costs that consumers and companies pay to reach his consumers. So that became a conversation. And there, there's been numerous instances where ISPs have floated this idea of charging you more if you want to watch something in 4K versus HD, uh, charging you more if you wanted to reach one website quicker than another. So there was, you know, despite some rhetoric about how this is a solution in search of a problem, there was very clear intention on the part of the broadband monopolies that they were going to try and further abuse their market power.
1: Well, and- I would go back even further to the, um, the early 1800s um, before the telegraph. Um, when um, one of the things i found interesting in the history of coal a book by Barbara Fries, she talks about um, how the Pennsylvania, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania actually made it illegal for anyone that owned a canal in this case, the Schuylkill canal to own interests in logging or mineral extraction, coal companies, recognizing that the owner of the canal could charge exorbitant fees to 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 rivals in the marketplace and then create a uh, coal monopoly or a logging monopoly out of ownership of the only way to get those resources out of the region. And so, like I mean, it go and you could go back I'm sure to Roman times, where they recognized yeah. the the problem of of infrastructure being monopolized by someone who they can use it elsewhere, Certainly, we saw it on the railroad, so this is not a theoretical thing. this is a um I would say millennia of human history leading us to recognize this is a common problem that has to be dealt with through yeah. uh government.
0: And in the modern broadband era, ISPs, there was an ISP that blocked a, a competing uh, voice over an internet provider because they didn't want it competing with its own service. Verizon on its wireless networks will charge you more money to watch something in 4K versus HD. Um, there's been a lot of little moments over the years where they've made it very clear what their intent is. So when they say that, oh, this is, this is a regulatory solution in search of a problem, it's just, it's just not true. I mean, you can see their tactics over the years. It's pretty well documented and it's not at all subtle what their interests were.
1: There's a lot of years where I think public interest groups and I i don't know that I can name them all, but there's several that I think were fighting hard. Um now, you know, public knowledge, Harold Feld had been at the media access project and a lot of other folks from there, free press, um, uh fight for the future, uh very involved, uh more recently, uh Cheryl Lianza with uh a number of different groups over the years, I think. Um I don't know suddenly all of Cheryl's background, but there's a number of different people who have been working to make sure that we had proper uh, oversight and regulation to curb monopoly potential abuses. Um, that leads at some point, I don't know, maybe you know the year, but the FCC developed some weak rules, basically. And maybe it's helpful here to talk about Title I or Title Two. Do you want to take that first?
0: I will note that like in 2010, they did introduce net neutrality rules, but they were weirdly... Broad and had all kinds of loopholes. They didn't apply to wireless networks at all, which were the you know the exploding at the time, which didn't make any sense. Um, so the early efforts at this were not very well considered, you know. And the courts let them know that they weren't very well considered. But then in 2015, I think the Wheeler FCC finally implemented some 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 meaningful rules.
1: Yeah. So uh, the Wheeler FCC is where we like really in in the Obama years where we really fought over Title One or Title Two. In part because one of the entertaining things that I think was, that, as you noted, the FCC implemented some weak rules under um, Chairman Jenekowski. Woof! Not going to spend no. any time talking about his disastrous reign. Um, <laughs> but um, the rules were were pretty limp, as you note. And Verizon challenged them in court and then won, and so the FCC had to develop better rules. And I think FCC was kind of scratching their head, like, why did we just do that? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> I think Comcast did the same thing then too, didn't they?
0: Yeah, they did. But the FCC kind of surprised everybody because at the time, Tom Wheeler was a former cable and wireless lobbyist and so people didn't really know if he was going to pursue this with any sort of vigor. Mm-hmm. And so he, when he came out with full, full rules that basically uh, redefined the regulatory landscape, it was, it was actually pretty surprising to a lot of people.
1: And that was, I think, uh, uh, something that resulted from a, the full court press of the public interest community. It was something that he did not want to do, was my understanding, but felt that he had to do. And this gets into this Title I or Title II issue where, um, the Federal Communications Commission is an executive agency. It gets its power from Congress. And so if the FCC wants to make a rule about something, it has to cite the authority of how it can do it from Congress. Congress told the FCC it could regulate different buckets of things in different ways. And so the FCC regulates cable in a different way from certain wireless transmissions in a different way from what we call Title II, which is a bucket, the Title II bucket, which was telephone and telecommunications services. And then there was this bucket of Title One, and Title One uh, was was information services, and it was very lightly regulated because the idea was that this was not super important. And so the FCC considered broadband internet access, or internet access more broadly, I suppose, to be a. Or I think it is broadband internet access. Lawyers, if you really want to get the big, big, big details, listen to the lawyers. This is a quick yeah. recap for help. <laughs> um, yeah. But anyway, broadband internet access was uh, considered Title I, which means the FCC did not have the authority to regulate it in certain ways. For instance, um, telling them that they had to not uh, discriminate or not block sites. And so the FCC kept trying to come up with rules under its Title I authority, and the courts kept saying, you don't have authority if this is a Title I service to implement those rules. And finally, on, in 2015, uh, Chairman Wheeler said, all right, broadband is a Title II service. Uh, we've recognized this, and, uh, and we have evidence for that. And here are the rules that we are going to use. And, um, and then that did, uh, I believe, survive challenge uh, from uh, court challenge.
0: Yeah, the courts have repeatedly at this point said that, that they were well within their authority to create those rules. I mean, the the, the uh, Trump FCC was well within its authority to remove them, although the way they removed them, I could go on at great length about as being a little <laughs> bit underhanded, um, including the fact that they at one point used um, dead and fake people. They, the broadband industry paid PR groups to use dead and fake people to stuff the FCC comment box in with artificial support for the repeal of the rules. Didn't they use your
1: name for one of them?
0: They did. Mine was one of them. Yep. Someone wrote in as me saying that I really appreciated them making it easier for telecom monopolies to do whatever they wanted. Right. That was nice, nice and charming. Um, And the FCC basically, the the Ajit Pai FCC at that time basically turned a a blind eye eye to those practices. I could go on at great length about the sleazy tactics that were used to repeal the rules, which I I would note have great uh, bipartisan support uh, in polls uh, across the American public.
1: The rules do not the sleazy tactics. Yes. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. I'm sure some
0: people like it, but not me.
1: And I would say, you know, one of the things that I heard from a number of municipal network operators was a concern about Title II, because under Title II, the Federal Communications Commission has the authority to go much further, to do, pass rules that would require unbundling, where network owners would have to share their networks, or the FCC could actually regulate the rates that are charged. And uh, those freaked out the big companies, the middle-sized companies, and the small companies. But- the FCC under, um. Chairman Wheeler said we will forbear from using those sorts of things, and that was a way to, I think, give the markets some confidence that the FCC was not going to engage in something that some people would consider overreaching and have ma- major market implications if they were to start doing rate regulation. Um, and so uh, there was a, there was, a, I think, an overblown interest from some scaremongers to say, well, the FCC could always unforbear from it. Uh, my understanding was that that is uh, something that basically there's not even a sense of how the FCC would go about doing that there probably is a path but it would not happen um i think there are people that i hold in high esteem who think the fcc should engage in unbundling and rate regulation requirements but uh I am not in that camp myself, I think that's just a way to to make a bunch of uh, telecom lawyers in d c really rich and uh yep. and spend years of us writing stupid headlines about how nothing's changed, but the rules are being appealed once again <laughs> yep
0: yep these and these new rules forbear a lot as well, but you know when i when I hear a A lot of the people that talked about how the FCC at any point could become radical and do all kinds of radical stuff. I don't feel (laughs) like those people have watched the FCC over the last 30 years. This is a fairly feckless agency. Most of the stuff it does do is a little bit regulatory theater, like the broadband labels, for example, that they're proposing. uh, That show how much you're going to pay for a connection, all the restrictions on the line. Instead of fixing the underlying problem that results in high prices and doing policies like that drive competition to market they often tend to do these more superficial approaches. We'll tell you, we're gonna demand that broadband providers are more transparent, about how they're ripping you off, but we're not going to actually do anything about how they're ripping you off. So there's a lot, that's mostly what the FCC does. I mean, they do a lot of other intelligent and important engineering work that's very complicated and essential to how everything works. So I want to make sure that that side is, is understood. But this idea that the FCC will just radically go off the wheels and start implementing like super pro-consumer policies is, a, is, is pretty farcical if you understand the agency's history.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, With that being said, I think as recently as a month ago, I expected this FCC, once uh, Commissioner Ana Gomez was seated, I expected them to basically say, well, there's not enough time to do this. So um, I, you know, uh, I'm glad to see this. I I don't think it really changes a lot, thanks to California, and some other places where these rules are have been codified at the state level as well. So, we haven't seen any of the really bad behavior. I think there's been some edge conditions that we wouldn't like to see. Um, I think on the whole, we're better off with these net neutrality rules. Um, but I also, I'm always a little bit frustrated when we have to spend a lot of effort to win a battle that in the end just preserves where we are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> is, I know. Uh, I'm mostly it's free t- and open internet.
0: <laughs> yeah, 20 years of clawing just to get back to what should be, you know, basically the standard concept. I see a lot. I see a lot of people argue that because, you know, the net neutrality was repealed and the Internet didn't immediately explode in a rainbow, that that means that net neutrality didn't matter. But what happened is after the repeal states, including the entire West Coast, passed their own state-level net neutrality laws. So big ISPs didn't want to implement some weird anti-competitive concept across their footprints because they'd run afoul of the attorneys general across the entire West Coast, which they're not going to do. So the reason that they've been on their best behavior isn't because the rules didn't matter. It's because states stepped up and filled the gap that the federal government put in place with their apathy about consumer protection. So I think that's always important to note because every, like clockwork, every Every three months, I see somebody say, "Well, net neutrality rules must not have mattered because I could still use the internet." You know, and that just doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah, I have. Uh, I have the quote somewhere of um, Chairman Ajit Pai saying that um, once he um, restored internet freedom, which is what he termed his effort of uh, re- removing those rules, um, uh, the internet would be less expensive. Uh, now, of course, U.S. telecom and other trade groups have issued paper after paper explaining how even though Internet access has increased by like 30 or 40 percent, it's actually cheaper if you squint your eyes in the right way. Yeah, right, right,
0: right. If you study it just a certain way, you know, bits per second at certain times of day, you might you might notice that there's cost savings. Right.
1: But otherwise, otherwise, no. One of the things we've already seen, uh, it literally I think it was the same day that uh, that we got a sense of what the rules are. There was already a report. Written by uh, former uh, Obama lawyers uh, saying that uh, this is actually now a major question, which means it's a way of basically saying the Supreme Court should throw this rule out and force um, the FCC to have no authority over that it should wait until Congress acts on it. And, um, and I just, I, I just want to throw out there that we will continue to see a lot of Democrats, um, taking big paydays from big telecom, like Heidi Heidkamp did to try and tank Gigi Sohn's non- nomination. Yeah. Heidi Heidkamp, yeah. a very centrist, um, uh, sen- uh, senator from North Dakota who, I thought did a good job in a variety of ways, uh, but but then went out and just lied vociferously about Gigi Stone's record. And we'll see the same thing with, um, you know, so the number of Democrats will take big paydays to say that net neutrality is is horrible and will be the end of something.
0: Yeah, exactly right. Uh, Joe Manchin, too. Don't forget about him. He was central in, in dismantling Gigi's nomination, as was yes. Mark Kelly and uh, Masto. I forget which state she's from, Arizona. Yeah, Nevada. Nevada. Yeah. So, right. yeah, there's always that centrist group that that is just as bad as the GOP often in terms of taking telecom money and then scuttling, you know, reasonable attempts to impose just basic base consumer protections. The narrative is that net neutrality was radical. Right. I mean, that's been their narrative since the beginning, that net neutrality is, again, the socialist takeover of the Internet or whatever they want to call it. But it's really it's actually the rules are fairly <laughs> modest by international standards and they're they're fairly basic. Um, so the idea that this was a radical move, I well, think for us, sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh, and, and we saw the results, right? I mean, like, here's the thing is that like the rules passed and what did Verizon tell investors? It doesn't change much for us. Yeah, you know? like, exactly. You know, right, we'll, yeah. We'll, we're going to invest in similar way. And here, here's why, because like ultimately Verizon, AT&T, Comcast, Charter, they're picking an appropriate amount of investment based on what it will take to keep their customers. Um, You know uh, I think Comcast is looking at different fiber builders and the rate of loss and trying to figure out when they need to upgrade the um, yeah. charter spectrum. I think, what do they say? It's like 150, $200 per home to upgrade to the DOCSIS symmetrical new, um, the new standard that's going to allow them to offer much higher capacity speeds. And they're not on a path to do that anytime soon. Cause they're like, eh, we don't have to do it right now. Their yeah, there's no competitive very, pressure. Net neutrality has almost zero weight, and maybe it has a, a half of a percentage point of a yeah. of a weight on like how they make their investment decisions. It's it's very small.
0: And it's also important to note that passing net neutrality rules are one thing, but having a regulator consistently enforce them on any meaningful right. scale <laughs> in a country of this size is something else. So even if we have net neutrality rules that you don't like, the chance of them being consistently enforced are pretty slim. I mean, yeah. honestly.
1: You might remember the number. Was it like nine billion dollars that was at stake in the mobility fund when yeah. um under the Trump administration, when they found that the wireless companies had systematically lied about their speeds and whatnot? And then they didn't it wasn't you couldn't even call it a slap on the wrist uh, no, as to what like, the result yeah. was
0: yeah I mean when they do take action, it's usually pretty thin, and the fines are like a very small amount of the money that whatever money was made off of the sleazy behavior to begin with so there's not much real incentive i mean the real that's why it, it comes back to competition it comes back to driving competition to markets because that's where I think you can have the biggest impact and um most of these federal regulators that are so obsessed with claiming that they support bridging the digital divide generally don't say much about monopoly power and don't really have um any solutions for monopoly power and many of them don't support community broadband networks. You know, many of the politicians that could provide really strong messaging support for community broadband networks, organic local responses to monopoly Mm -hmm. power, they, they have nothing to say about it. Um, So in that sense, I worry a little bit that the net neutrality debate, which is important, kind of obscures the more important issue to me, which would be monopoly power and having regulators with the political courage to actually do something about it.
1: Yeah. So we need a network neutrality to make sure that, uh, the providers aren't, I think, abusing us worse, but it doesn't actually result in the competitive world we want to live in where everyone has high quality access, where it's affordable, where, uh, you know, it's very reliable. And, uh, and those where we don't have data caps, you and I were just talking about, we both have, uh, we're yeah. both in that like uh, approaching our data cap time of the month. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm in Silicon Valley North, they call Seattle, you know, it's supposed to be like one of the biggest tech centers in the United States. And my only broadband choice is capped Comcast service. That's my only option. And I'm six miles from downtown. So um, yeah, and I'm my situation is very common. Um, I, I think it's much more important to focus any regulatory power we have on driving competitors to market, supporting smaller businesses, supporting small WISPs. Um, supporting community broadband cooperatives you know uh, city owned utilities that 's where they could have the biggest impact and they don 't mm-hmm. they don 't do it they don 't do it um because they don 't want to upset powerful campaign contributors and people tethered to our domestic surveillance and law enforcement systems they just don 't want to do it they lack the political willpower um so in that i again I think net neutrality is important but i i just for people that write about it and talk about it, i think it 's important to constantly bring the concept back to the real issue which is monopoly power.
1: Yeah, it's also important to the the old sellout academics that are looking for one more uh, payday. Maybe they use that money in good ways, I don't know, but uh yeah. but we'll we're going to see a fair number of these reports. I, I you know, actually maybe we could play a little game of guess the next university that we've never heard of before that will suddenly have a new department <laughs> uh sponsored yeah. by uh you know, Comcast or Charter or something like yeah. that.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's so, it's so amazing this week. Uh, as soon as it, the hint that they would restore net neutrality happened, numerous news outlets started pushing like editorials from the telecom industry without financial disclosures that their authors work as a lobbyist or policy person for the telecom industry. Bloomberg did it. I saw numerous trade banks circulating these stories about how, how uh, killing net neutrality was the best thing to ever happen to the internet you know, and it protected a vibrant, competitive broadband marketplace. You know, all this rhetoric is pretty much the same exact rhetoric they've been using for five to 10 years, usually dressed up as an objective <laughs> analysis. And then, and these these news, these news outlets do not reveal financial tethers. There's no disclosures at the bottom of these pieces saying that the author took money from the broadband industry or...
1: Right. And I just want to, I want to know when exactly would we have killed the internet? So if we had maintained... The ability for the FCC to overregulate, which is there, the F- under Title II, the FCC in theory could overregulate. The was that going to be the Trump administration that overregulated, or was it going to be a two-two yeah. Biden administration that couldn't do anything yeah. that was going to overregulate and strangulate? I'm not sure when the strangulation yeah. would have happened.
0: That's another thing the press doesn't talk about very much is the fact that our top telecom and media uh, regulator was basically sidelined for seven straight years due to lobbying. Under the Trump administration, they were generally a rubber stamp for anything AT&T, Comcast, and Verizon wanted. They approved mergers. They approved deals. They stripped away consumer protections. They did pretty much everything the industry wanted. And then for two years under Biden, because there was a little sluggishness in even nominating a person to begin with, and then the uh, telecom industry kind of ran smear campaigns against Gigi So, and there's another two years where they lacked the voting majority to do anything. So that's seven straight years where the top telecom regulator was sidelined due to lobbying. Now, I know a lot of people aren't thrilled about government intervention, and I know some people have suspicions about government overreach, but I don't think what we want is a regulator that's basically a marionette, a dumb puppet. I don't think anybody wants that. That doesn't serve competition. It doesn't serve innovation. It doesn't drive competitors to market. It makes things worse. And there's a lot of conversations in the press that kind of skip over that fact. So all I'm asking for most of the time when I write is just an honest accounting of what's happening because Mm -hmm. it's transparent to the public what's happening it's transparent to people like me that's written about it for 20 years what's happening so i'd like to see more regulators with the backbone to acknowledge you know where we actually are which is um, most of our regulators are on the ropes you know they're not going to overreach because there's been a 20 multi-decade campaign to make them as useless as possible and i think with some of the looming supreme court decisions like the chevron deference ruling Uh, which risks basically making it so that regulators can't make any independent decisions based on their policy expertise without an explicit approval of Congress, that's going to get worse. They know they have Congress lobbied into gridlock. Big companies know that they have Congress lobbied. Mm -hmm. So people who Mm -hmm. say we should pass a net neutrality law and do it the right way, they're being disingenuous because that's never getting through Congress. They effectively own at least half of Congress. I mean, I I would say maybe even higher. Um, so the idea that you're supposed to do this through Congress is, is kind of laughable. And now they're taking aim at the last vestiges of regulatory oversight. And I personally think it's kind of shocking that people haven't been talking more about the massive ramifications that could have across environmental protection, consumer protection, safety regulations. It's a big deal and it's coming fast.
1: I do think there's going to be a blowback. I mean, I think, you know, it's one of those things where as people see the results, um, you know, it, we don't have an EPA without rivers burning. Um, yeah. unfortunately, right. so, um, yeah. you know, it takes us a while sometimes, but I, I, don't want, I don't lose hope and I don't want to end this on, uh, on such a realistic, pessimistic note. So let's <laughs> no, talk about no. a realistic, optimistic note.
0: I think, I think the reform is perfectly possible. I think it, I see, I see a lot of vibrance in younger generations. They recognize the playing field for what it is. They're, they're involved. I see young people voting. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm actually not pessimistic about it. And I agree with you that it has to get a little worse. Uh, to get better. People have to see the real world impacts of stripping away the authority of all your regulators before they say, okay, maybe I don't want an FCC that blindly does whatever Comcast tells it to.
1: But I did want to end on a local optimistic note, I feel like, which is, you know, we've been uh, working with you to document a lot of cool local stories. Is there anything that pops into your head as a good one you want to just give us a a quick summary on to end on a positive? Yeah, I've
0: I've been impressed with Vermont, um, their development of communications uh, districts. Um, you know, little co- coagulations of counties that work together to deploy broadband. Um, you know, there's, there's countless examples everywhere. Every week I talk to a different town and city that's building some new idea buoyed by the massive amounts of uh, infrastructure funding that's coming down the lane. So I, I am optimistic, but I think all the fights in the, for the next five, 10 years are local fights. I think a lot of the biggest fights are street by street and you can build that outward and get people motivated and interested to then kind of rebuild some kind of competent federal uh, oversight of systems. But there's no shortage of amazing stuff going on. What is it, 900 communities at this point?
1: It's in that area, yeah. Uh, have some sort of municipal network investment.
0: Yeah, I, I do see a lot of change. And I see a lot of people, a lot of really engaged local activists fighting block by block. And that, that's very encouraging. So while I, you know, my, my thing was I spent 20 years writing about federal regulatory dysfunction. So, you know, through that lens, things are very grim. Um, but if you stop and you go visit the local towns and you talk to people that are actually building the networks, there's a lot of great things happening. Amazing stuff. I do feel buoyed from that.
1: Thank you for joining us. And thank
2: you for uh, for writing so many great stories for us. Thank
0: you. I appreciate it.
2: We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash bits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at community nets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support, in any amount, keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening.